almost nobody waves the wand. And I find that utterly fascinating. And it also is useful information because it tells us there's a lot more going on here than just the wish to reduce CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere or stop burning fossil fuels. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. We are at a very strange moment in this pandemic. It is raging worse than ever in many parts of the world. What is happening at this point in Brazil and India and other countries is truly tragic. At the same time, there are some countries, including the United Kingdom and the United States, and hopefully soon large parts of Europe, in which a large percentage of the population has been fully vaccinated. And people who have been fully vaccinated are very unlikely to spread the virus to others. And they are very unlikely to get seriously sick from COVID-19. As those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a long time know, I was one of the loud and proud advocates of very ambitious containment measures. I wrote an article in The Atlantic to which my editors gave the title, Cancel Everything, which was trending on Twitter. I'm somebody who takes this pandemic seriously because I believe in the sanctity of human life and the dangers posed by this virus. But all of the safety measures that we've been taking for the last 14 or 15 months were not to prove our superior moral virtue. They were not because wearing a mask or being reluctant to hug friends is somehow a superior way of life. They were out of bloody necessity. And today, for those of us who are lucky enough to be fully vaccinated, that necessity is over. We are not at serious risk of spreading this disease to others. We are not at serious risk of falling gravely ill from this virus. And so it is time to return to normal life. If you're fully vaccinated, go watch that movie or that concert indoors. Meet your friends and give them a good long hug. Eat inside the restaurant if it's a little chilly out. Take off your mask and don't feel bad about it for a moment. My guest today is Mark Linus. Mark is a British author and journalist and climate activist. He's been active in the environmentalist movement for a very long time. As you'll see in the conversation, he started off as a staunch opponent of GM crops, as in many ways a very traditional environmentalist. Over time, he's become an advocate of what he calls eco-modernism. He thinks that we need to have an optimistic, a forward-looking vision about how we can achieve what he calls climate prosperity, deal with climate change in a decisive manner, but also allow countries, especially in the developing world, to become more affluent for people to have more opportunities in their lives. We had a broad-ranging conversation about environmentalism, about issues from renewable energy to nuclear, but also about how people come to change their mind. Mark Linus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. Great to be here. 
So I've been following your writing for a long time and I had the great pleasure of meeting you. You actually welcomed me into your home a few years ago when I was close by for a literary festival. You started off life as an environmental activist and you were very active in the movement to oppose GM crops. In fact, you destroyed some fields with GM crops. Tell us what got you into that activity and why over time you changed your mind about it. Well, that's a long story. So I'm glad we've got a whole hour for this. I don't remember the moment that I self-identified as an environmentalist, for want of a better way of putting it. But it goes right back to my childhood. And, you know, even when I was doing high school, I remember doing a kind of dissertation on global warming or the greenhouse effect, as it was known in those days. That was way back in the mid-1980s. But when I left university, I got very involved in the direct action movement. And we were opposing the government's road building program. So going and setting up trees and tree houses, going living down tunnels, all that kind of thing. And then when the GM crops issue came up, and it was something which was brought to us actually by activists from Greenpeace, we just felt this had to be stopped. This was some kind of awful genetic pollution that was going to go out and devastate the countryside and was going to make farming chemical dependent and even more industrialized and all the things that we were against. And so, yeah, we had a campaign of direct action, which was incredibly successful and destroyed all of the GMO test sites that were ongoing in the UK at that time. And this was in the late 1990s and basically stopped the entire scientific effort, exported the whole issue to Europe. And it remains de facto banned across the whole of the European continent to this day. So it was the most successful environmental campaign I've ever been involved in. Unfortunately, it was wrong. And that's <laughs> a realization that I came to very gradually much later. But it's one of those ironies in life that the things that you do that succeed turn out to have been wrong-headed to start with. Well, that's the most consistent idea in the history of ideas, right? I mean, careful what you wish for. Yeah, the road to hell being paid with good intentions. No, die Geister, die rief, werde ich nun nicht los. Exactly, the Goethe poem, the spirits I beckoned, I can now not get rid of. But why were you wrong? What were you wrong about? Why is it that... Uh, fears about GM crops that uh, many people still have today are misplaced. There's different dimensions to this. I mean, there's the kind of political economy dimension, who controls the technology, whose benefits is it being put to. But there's also the scientific question of, is it safe to be deployed? And now you have this peculiar situation where the kind of corporate political economy questions are no longer considered particularly by most people, which actually are the legitimate questions, I think, whereas the stuff about it's going to give me cancer or it's unsafe in some way are widely believed, and there's no scientific evidence for those at all. And, you know, we've got data now because GM crops have been used in North and South America and elsewhere for, well, over 20 years, showing the impact of the technology. And it's quite clear that it's a benefit for the environment because it's helped improve yields and it's also helped reduce the application of agricultural chemicals, particularly insecticides. So when you have 20 years of data, it's, I think, quite valid to change your mind and say, actually, this is a technology that's driven agriculture in a more sustainable direction. And when it comes to the genetics and the sort of the unnaturalness of moving genes between species, that's also not what it was cracked up to be. I wonder whether part of the moral mistake that many people have made with GM crops, and I'm very much on your side of this debate, is thinking about risks and benefits in very different ways. So there was a huge exaggeration of the risks, and it turns out that there really was no reason to fear those risks. But there was also, what I find most striking, a real lack of focus on the benefits. Now, one of the benefits, as you're saying, is making some of those crops more sustainable because they need less water, for example. But another benefit is 
really for human health. My understanding is that I believe it's a strain of rice that was cultivated in one part of the world where people had a crucial vitamin deficiency, which made many people go blind. And this rice was going to help hundreds of thousands of people not go blind. But I think because that is a benefit that is in the future, people don't weigh it as heavily as the kind of risk of an activity. So I guess, how can we take more seriously potential benefits of technology when we consider about what to adopt, what to put research money into, et cetera? Yeah, I think we can learn from history about the failure of GMOs in terms of the failure of the scientific community to make its case and to be heard on that. And for me, uh, looking back at this and as a sort of minor participant, I think the failure was actually to deploy the technology in a way which was obviously beneficial at the outset. So the first GM crops that were made available widely to farmers were Roundup Ready, which enabled Monsanto to sell more of its herbicide in the same package, along with patented seeds to farmers in North America in a very industrialized agricultural model. That's not something that people were excited about. It looked like it was driving farming in the wrong direction. And, you know, to some extent, I still share that concern. But the second generation then were about reducing insecticide use by making it possible for crops to basically protect themselves. And you mentioned golden rice, which is third generation of nutrient-enhanced GM crops. And now there's all sorts of other things as well. There's fish oils, which have been bred into oil seeds, which can mean that we can get these really important nutrients without having to devastate the world's oceans. There's so many different traits which could be really, really beneficial, but it's now too late because most of the world has got this idea that GM crops are wrong in some way. And the opposition is, you use the word moral, it is moral. It's not about a risk-benefit analysis. It's almost like it's sacrilegious to do what scientists are doing with GM crops. And the level of moral opposition is therefore absolute. People don't weigh up risks and benefits. They say, I'm against this and I will always be against this. And that's the situation we're in. So it's almost like the debate is completely blocked. Yeah, it's become what Jonathan Haidt in his podcast a few episodes back called a sort of sacred value that is just wrong. And no matter what you might say about the benefits, that's irrelevant because you're doing something that we have to oppose no matter what. What is the way in which you ultimately came to change your mind? And there was a very dramatic way in which you announced that you changed your mind at the Oxford Farming Conference, which I take it as the conference where a lot of organic farmers and people who had the deepest belief that Jim crops are wrong assemble. And you held a keynote in which you publicly reversed your opinion on this. Tell us how you got to that point and what that day was like. Yeah, so it's not for nothing that most people don't change their minds about significant issues. I mean, you'll know all about the tribalism thing. So I was very involved in the environmental movement. And, you know, the GMOs issue was a complete red line for everyone, and it still is. And so I was very aware that if I changed my mind on this and I spoke up publicly, that it would put me at odds with many of my friends and colleagues and, in fact, would lead to me being more or less ousted from the movement. And so it was something which I gave a lot of consideration to about whether I actually wanted to go there. I mean, was it really that important? But the reason I realized in the first place was that I've been doing a lot of work on climate change. I'd spent 15 years, I've written several books on climate change, and I'd been out there arguing that we needed to respect the science. We should listen to the scientific consensus, the 97%, whatever it is, all of those thousands of papers that have been published showing that climate change is real. So if you're going out there with a trust the scientist message on climate change, then having a kind of don't trust the scientist message and ignore the consensus on GMOs struck me as being just completely inconsistent. And I felt it was undermining my role really as a science communicator, which was something that I took very seriously. That was my profession. That was my career as far as I was concerned. And I tell the story in my book, Seeds of Science. I kind of had to choose between two different tribes. 
the environmentalist green tribe or the scientific evidence-based tribe. And I chose the latter because, after all, that's really my worldview. I'm a kind of creature of the Enlightenment. I believe that there are such things as objective truth and that science is the best way anyone's ever come up with to try to get there. And so I was driven by conscience as much as anything. And yes, I stood up at the Oxford Farming Conference, which is the big UK meeting where all of the farmers, large and small, come to that. The Secretary of State, you know, the government minister always gives an address. I think I came after Prince Charles, who'd given a video speech. Of course, he's a famous proponent of organic farming and very anti-GM himself. Yeah, my first sentence was to apologise. And I said, I apologise for what I did with destroying the GM crops. And I think that was wrong. And what was the reaction? Were you, in fact, cast out of the tribe? Yeah, Yeah, I was completely excluded and people who I'd known and you know been to parties with and shared many long late nights with had signed all signed a statement uh, denouncing what I'd done. And, you know, they had to find an angle and they said that I'd hyped up my role. And basically this whole thing was kind of a career ploy on my part. They wanted to make me look self-interested. So that was particularly <laughs> spiteful or it came across that way. I mean, I guess when you're involved in something you care about as deep as they do and I do, it's just irreconcilable and you'll say what you can think to do the most damage. But it was a pretty unpleasant situation. And I think it's an interesting thing that so many people believe that their side of an issue is so obviously right that they come to suspect that anybody who disagrees with them cannot have decent motives. They cannot have come to that conclusion because that's where they believe, whether they're right or wrong, the evidence pointed them. So if somebody who I know, who I know is smart, who I've hung out with, is suddenly advocating for something that I find abhorrent, what's the explanation? Well, there must be a grifter. There must be a terrible person. And you see this cropping up online all of the time, right? Where people always accuse, corrupt, a grifter, careerist. And I think that's a very interesting element of online discourse at the moment as well. Now, You alluded to your work on climate change and the way in which I think people often think in terms of sacred values in that context too. I know that there's a question that you like to ask audiences about a kind of carbon fairy. Would you share that question with us? Yeah, I mean, this isn't my original idea. I can't remember where I first heard it, but if you're in front of an audience of, I don't know, two or 300 people who are desperately, deeply concerned about climate change, They would do anything to stop this problem and they're devoting their whole lives to it. And you say to them, well, imagine there's a carbon fairy that can wave a magic wand and push, the problem goes away. Would you do that? And then perhaps we can pause for just five seconds for people to ponder this question for themselves. So if we can wave a magic wand and climate change goes away as a problem, would you wave a magic wand? Yeah, well, and almost nobody waves the wand. And I find that utterly fascinating. And it also is useful information because it tells us there's a lot more going on here than just the wish to reduce CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere or stop burning fossil fuels. So if you're right that 90% of people won't wave a wand, then I assume that some of the people listening to this podcast won't want to wave a wand either, or that at least they're uncomfortable waving the wand. What's the reason for waving the wand? Well, the wand is sort of symbolic for nuclear power in that there's been a technology which is completely scalable, completely ecologically benign, and it's been around for 50 years, and yet we're choosing not to use it. Before we get into nuclear power, I can see how those two things might be connected, but I think it's interesting in itself, right, which is that, you know, often there's a real problem in the world, and sort of we believe that we're motivated by the problem, but actually we start to invest all kinds of other things into the problem, right? And so I think a lot of people think, hey, the fight against climate change is not just about climate change, it's about building an economy we want, or it's about making sure that we don't live in these horrible cities where people have long commutes and drive SUVs, which they dislike for all kinds of 
aesthetic and other reasons in any case. And so I think part of what people feel would be lost if we can just wave a wand is that sort of this great transformative opportunity is gone. And by the way, I think that's precisely why it's so hard to get people on board with the fight against climate change. I think a lot of people in the United States and other countries feel like, well, you know what? You're using all of this climate change stuff as an excuse to tell me how to lead my life, to tell me how to change my lifestyle, to tell me that I'm a bad person. And so screw you, right? If that's what you're using it for, then I'm just going to deny the whole thing. I'm just going to say, let's see what comes. And so we can get to nuclear power in a moment, but that to me is sort of core of a dispute and why it's so important for people like you and me who really do care about climate change, who really do worry about its impact, say, no, 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 we should care about it because of the terrible impact it's having on the planet and on human life. We shouldn't care about it as an opportunity to put through all kinds of our preferences we might have. We should care about limiting its impacts. And then we can think about how to do that. But obviously, if there was a magic formula to get rid of results, we really should use it. And, and I guess I would say to my audience, if you are uncomfortable with waving the magic wand, you should interrogate yourself about whether your concern about this topic really is coming from where it should do. Yeah, well, you just answered the question very eloquently. And the magic wand, the carbon fairy, is sort of a symbol for the fact that most environmentalists don't want to reconcile solving the climate problem with reconciling to industrial capitalism, essentially. So if you were to say, we're going to leave the whole system unchanged, big corporations, inequality, people doing all these terrible things, living in big cities, distance from nature, you're going to leave all that unchanged, just solve the CO2 problem, people don't want to do it. Or at least the people who are motivated by, or think they're motivated by addressing climate change don't want to do it. And so that's ultimately why those of us who did want to wave the wand and consider ourselves sort of eco-pragmatists, if you like, because of the urgency of the situation, if we want to save the coral reefs, you've got to wave that wand, right? You can't go trying to start a revolution that it would take decades to play out. And even if it worked, it would probably be worse than where we started off where most uh, revolutions are. So the idea of being pragmatic and just getting the job done and getting it done in the quickest and easiest way possible was something that actually required a whole rethink of environmentalism itself. And that's where we came up with this term eco-modernism. And there was a lot of people, you know, really thinking about what is it about environmentalism, which means that it simply cannot allow itself to address problems in the easiest, quickest ways, which are most likely to succeed. So explain those ideas to us. You mentioned eco-pragmatism and then eco-modernism. How is that a challenge to a traditional orientation towards environmentalism? And why might an embrace of eco-modernism help us to actually save problems like climate change? I have to generalize here, and I know a lot of people who consider themselves environmentalists will object to the way that I'm generalizing, but for me, this is the only way I can make sense of this. And if you wind the clock back to the Industrial Revolution and the whole reaction against that of the Romantic movement, I think those essential schisms are still there, and that's essentially the difference between eco-modernism and traditional environmentalism, in that traditional environmentalism has always been about getting humans back in touch with nature, being back in harmony with nature. And it's coupled with ideas of Mother Nature being somehow benign and almost like Gaia, sort of godlike figure. But either way, nature is good. Nature is something you want to be close to. And the ways in which humans have separated themselves from nature are fundamentally bad, both in an ecological and in a kind of moral sense. They're bad for us, even as humans. And that then does mean that there's lots of things you can't do. You can't use nuclear power. You can't use technology because technology itself is part of the problem. That's one of the ways in which humans are becoming more and more cut off from nature. And so I think that's probably the fundamental philosophical difference. I think it's quite a deep one. I think it really goes back to what your perspective is of modern civilization itself. Yeah. So there is a kind of idea 
of an original sin. And that part of the reason why it would be bad to wave a magic wand is that we've sinned against nature. And in order to make the world right, and in order for us to be in moral balance again, we need to self-flagellate. And we need to go back to the past in a certain kind of way. We need to put an end to sort of the excesses of modern civilization. And if there was some way that we can solve climate change that doesn't do that, that can't or at least shouldn't work because we're not expiating our sin. I think it's a way in which there are religious overtones in some of these kinds of movements. Now, I think one of the reasons why you're a little hesitant about this is that you're working with countries that are at the forefront of potentially suffering the consequences of climate change. And they don't have a moral luxury to say, we worry more about our soul than we worry about our people surviving floods and so on. So tell us a little bit about the work that you've done, I think, in the past of the Maldives and now with a coalition of countries. The kind of romantic reaction against industrialism is all very well if you live in an industrialized country. But if you're in sub-Saharan Africa or in South Asia or many of the countries which consider themselves least developed or developing, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that you've got a surfeit of goods and you're basically drowning in consumer affluence. And therefore, that's what we need to react against. That Your problem in most of the world, in the global south, is that you're poor. Your GDP is still very low and your lifespans are also very low and you don't actually have access to, to modern civilizational benefits. So the reaction against it doesn't make any sense. So I've recognized in dealing with the climate challenge that it's impossible to do that in a way which keeps the global south poor. So their carbon emissions are low. Um, we want them to stay low if we're going to save the planet because there isn't the carbon space for them to follow the same dirty industrialization path all based on fossil fuels in order to achieve affluence. So what are we going to do? And that's been the kind of fundamental Gordian knot in the whole climate change policy process from the original Earth Summit onwards, that developing countries led by China, but India as well, and pretty much all of them, said, why should we take any cuts in greenhouse gases? We haven't developed. You in the rich world are the ones who've, who've caused this problem. And the rich world refused to do anything about it. Bush withdrew from the Kyoto Protocol. And so we basically had this kind of Mexican standoff, which has continued until the Paris Accord, which was the point where developing countries agreed, OK, it's pretty late in the game now. We're going to have to take carbon targets as well. But the quid pro quo is that they'll be voluntary. So I'm working with the Climate Vulnerable Forum, which is a group of 48 of the world's most climate vulnerable countries. And it was co-founded by the Maldives a few years back. And it's currently led by Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina from Bangladesh. And the approach that they've taken is rather than saying we're just fundamentally victims because we're climate vulnerable countries, they actually coined this new term. And Sheikh Hasina mentioned this for the first time at the General Assembly in October, of what they call climate prosperity. She's doing a climate prosperity plan for the whole country now, and many of the other CVF countries are doing likewise. So basically, the deal is we are aiming to achieve prosperity in a conventional economic sense within 10 or 15 or 20 years. We want to be a middle-income country. We don't want to be an LDC, least developed country anymore. So how can we do that in a way which also takes us on the track towards net zero, which is where we have to go if we're going to have any chance of reaching 1.5 degrees, which is the target of CVF and the Paris Accords, of course. Before we get into the numbers, which I want to get to, and I want to talk about what you think the, the way to actually get towards the goals is, but part of this really is about the vision. I think that there is a kind of vision in which things are getting worse and the future is going to be even worse and climate change is the biggest danger in that. And so the most we can hope for is to avert catastrophe, right? We have 10 years to save a planet, but if we save a planet, our life is going to be a little poorer 
a little less good than today. And that's sort of the extent of our ambition, right? And I think what's interesting about what you're talking about, about climate prosperity, is a way of putting that upside down to say, no, we should be aiming for a future in which 50 or 100 years from now, people in affluent countries can still drive nice cars and they can still go on holiday and they can use planes and they can travel internationally and all of those wonderful things, all of those incredible achievements of human civilization, but also help to tie people to each other across regions and countries. But we need to find ways to do that that aren't damaging to the environment. And the same part of a vision when you're talking about less developed countries. It's not, oh, well, you know, they should find sustainable ways to basically have subsistence agriculture at a very low level of human development, at a very low level of access to education and material goods. No, we need to find ways to give them the middle-class lives that they seek, but once again, do that in a way that is environmentally sustainable. So I'm interested in this conceptual shift. I wonder whether we can say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, you've got it spot on. It's essentially a complete inversion of the traditional climate change narrative, which has always been about kind of sacrifice, austerity. To some extent, it's about going backwards because it has inherent within it this idea that things were better when we were poor. And subsistence agriculture is therefore better than industrialized agriculture. Therefore, why would you want to industrialize poorer countries? So it was never going to be possible to do that. And so inverting that narrative and making it not about austerity, but about prosperity is therefore brought all of these countries on board in a way which was never possible before because they can achieve their aims of becoming middle-income countries and having a middle class and, and becoming prosperous at the same time as solving the climate problem. And I think we could probably only do that now because the technologies are there which enable it, which they probably weren't 10 or 20 years ago. But it's still, I think, a huge reframing of the entire climate change narrative. And it's only just begun to percolate through. I don't think it's at all understood by the majority of the community out there, and certainly not by the majority of the environmental movement, just how significant a shift this is. So let's go through that. What gives us reason for this optimism that we might actually be able to achieve climate prosperity while increasing the standard of living, especially of people around the world who are in most urgent need of that? What technological developments have there been in the last 10 or 20 years that give us reason for optimism? Well, basically, there's technologies which are either available now at cheap, cheap cost or are becoming available, or at least you can visualize them to enable us to solve all of the problems that climate change has thrown up. And I mean, everything from methane emissions from livestock to aviation to electricity sector. And there's a whole spectrum of different technologies because these are all different problems with very different sources. But we can now imagine ways in which all of them can be addressed and done in a way which doesn't mean we have to fundamentally change our lifestyles in a way that most people would perceive as being a shift backwards. And I think that's a different position from where we were a decade or two ago. So talk us through some of those changes, even if it's in detail, I think it'll be really helpful for people to understand what they are. I mean, the most obvious one, it seems to me, is the plummeting cost of renewable energy. Tell us about that, but then also about what that is missing, why there's always other technologies that perhaps are less on people's minds that are as important. Yeah, I would put the plummeting cost of solar PV at the top of the list. So you can now, in hot countries of the world, you know, particularly hot deserts, you can build gigascale PV and get electricity out at roughly two cents a kilowatt hour. 
you know, that's the cheapest electricity anywhere in the world by a long shot, way cheaper than anything you can get from fossil fuels. So the days when you had to subsidize solar or other renewables have just gone. It's the cheapest option. Why would you build a coal plant when you've got the hot desert next door in Rajasthan or wherever? And it's also very modular. So you can just put in as much of it as you need and you can scale it up as rapidly as possible. Now, there are still problems with that. We've still got the intermittency challenge, obviously. So the intermittency challenge is what when it's winter or what when it's night and you suddenly need a lot of electricity. Is that probably right? Exactly. The weather-dependent renewables like wind and solar have this fundamental problem. But you can back them up now with better grid interconnections. There's grid-scale battery storage is now becoming a reality, a hydropower. So there's lots of different ways. And ultimately, we'll need to find ways to generate liquid fuels from clean energy sources so that we can then look at replacing fuels in transport, all the things that oil and gas basically do. And that's also on the scene now too. My one concern with renewables, certainly in the more heavily populated parts of the world, is that there might be a conflict with biodiversity in that we need to basically release land for wilderness and for rewilding. And if you cover huge areas with renewables infrastructure, then that might go against that. So I think the ecological arguments for nuclear fission still apply. Whether it can come in at the kinds of costs that it can outcompete or compete with renewables remains to be seen. But I think we should definitely do a lot more work on that because environmentally, nuclear fission is probably the best of all. So explain why you believe that, since I think that's probably the topic on which there's going to be most resistance. So nuclear power suffers from an image problem, obviously, similar to the GMO thing, but goes back even further. But the reality is that this is a technology which can deliver enough power to run whole countries carbon-free with almost no environmental cost at all, simply because the energy density of uranium fuels and the fission process is so high. So you, you take a couple of square kilometers of land and you can run an entire city. You, know, you can't do that with solar. It takes 100 to 1,000 times more land area to generate the power that you'd need using renewables because it's a much more diffuse energy source. That's not to say that renewables are bad. I mean, I think they are going to be the mainstay of the solution to climate change. But in a lot of places, and a lot of times, we'll still need nuclear to do all of the other things, not least to produce the liquid fuels, hydrogen and ultimately ammonia, which are then going to help us solve shipping, aviation and all of the other things that you're still using oil for. What about the risks of nuclear? I had that debate a little bit with Zion Lights when she was on the podcast and then we had a persuasion piece by Bill Budinger disagreeing with some of my sort of tentative statements. But it's the question of risk, which is to say, what is the worst case scenario with nuclear? And particularly when you see the failures of governance over the last year in the pandemic, for example, when you see the extent to which governments actually often fail, when you see the variability in the quality of corporate governance as well, what can give us confidence that if we really scale up nuclear, and we have it run in many different countries around the world, in many different political environments, you're not going to get some places where it just goes very deeply wrong because of mismanagement, of corruption, of incompetence. Is there a way to avoiding those worst case scenarios that should put those fears at ease? No, I don't think anyone could ever say there will never be another accident. Any technology can fail. Obviously, you do your utmost to mitigate that. But, you know, we all see planes crash and yet we continue to fly. We know that it's a very small risk, but it's a risk we're prepared to take because the benefits vastly outweigh the risk. I guess it's the same for nuclear. If you look at the deaths per terawatt hour metric, which is probably the right one to use if you want to quantify it, nuclear is the safest of all of the energy technologies out there, even safer than solar because people fall off roofs when they're installing them. No one in the West has ever died from a nuclear power accident. And that remains true even after Three Mile Island and Fukushima. 
what happened in the Soviet Union with Chernobyl was a special case because of the design of that reactor and, and of the system. So the worst that happens is that a lot of people get very scared. It's a psychological, political challenge primarily, and people have to evacuate from certain areas for a certain time, which is pretty bad. I'm not saying that what happened in Fukushima wasn't serious. It really was serious, and it was an absolute catastrophe for the people in the surrounding communities. But had they stayed put, they probably would have suffered a lot less than happened during the evacuation. But we only know that looking backwards now. By the way, I have been to Fukushima. I've been to those places, so I speak from at least some level of personal experience. Well, what about the fear that we haven't yet experienced the worst-case scenario, that in the end, Chernobyl was contained, that Fukushima could have gone much worse than it did, and that in the worst-case scenario, it would just make a huge area uninhabitable. Do you think that that is a mistaken fear? Or if it isn't a mistaken fear, why is it nevertheless worth doing? That's a completely mistaken fear. The absolute worst that can happen pretty much is what happened at Chernobyl. And areas do not become uninhabitable. I mean, Chernobyl is surrounded by a thriving wildlife zone, which is inhabited by all sorts of things, including a lot of people. But there's wolves and all sorts of endangered species which have come back there and are thriving in what was never intended as a nature reserve, but has become such. So this idea that you sterilize large areas of the planet, that's science fiction. But it's something which is stuck in people's minds. But that's why I say it's primarily a psychological challenge. But, you know, I think we should look forward at the fourth generation nuclear technologies, which are being trialed at the moment. And they just have some really incredible possibilities. There's a company called Moltex, which is designing a reactor, which I think they're going to build the first one in Canada, which basically runs off spent nuclear fuel from the previous generation of nuclear power. And you've got enough of this stuff now lying around to run pretty much the whole globe for a thousand years. So if you can burn up the existing nuclear waste in order to solve the climate problem, I can't see that many arguments against that. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't heard of this. So the idea here is that you don't even need to create new nuclear waste. You basically use for decomposing old fuel rods in order to generate new electricity. Is that the idea? Yeah, because most of the original light water reactors, as they're called, didn't burn up most of the uranium. So they only used about 4% of the energy in the fuel. So the other 96% still sits there, and it's now called spent fuel or nuclear waste. So all of that can be repurposed. And in the fourth generation reactors, particularly the molten salt variety, they just can solve the problem. You can get rid of all of the long-lived waste. You can burn it up completely, turn it into short-lived stuff, which then becomes safe after 100 or 200 years. And actually, many of them have other useful applications in medicine and such like. So this whole idea that you need to build a repository, which is a mile underground, because all this stuff's so dangerous. I mean, that was the worst mistake the nuclear industry ever made was agreeing to that proposal, because they thought they were going to reassure people. It's a bit like the vaccines. When you take it off the market and you think it's going to reassure people, it does the absolute opposite. Everyone thinks, oh my God, this must be deadly dangerous stuff, because if even the experts are worried, then we should be five times as worried. And so they should never have agreed nuclear waste needed to be isolated for a million years. It's completely pointless and completely goes against the physics of what radioactivity even is. Let's say we agree with this stance. How do you allay people's actual fears about it? I mean, you said that the most impactful thing you ever did was to help stir up opposition to GM crops. And of course, as you're pointing out, even though we now have very clear and reliable evidence of its safety, fears about GM crops remain very widespread and many parts of the globe continue to bind them. So it's fascinating to hear how you changed your mind, but you know, not nearly as many people have changed their mind about it as would be rational. What do you think the realistic prospects are for people changing their minds about nuclear and how should people who want that outcome go about it? Well, people won't change their minds when they're trapped within the tribal boundaries of the existing environmental movement, because 
it's very difficult to do that. And the risks to you as an individual from speaking out are too high. And so people are trapped within these kind of self-policing intellectual community. They're not going to change their minds. And you'll know more about this than anyone. So we have to rebuild the environmental movement from the ground up. And that's what eco-modernism seeks to do. There's eco-modernist groups incipient now in numerous countries across Europe and elsewhere, helping get MPs elected, just change the conversation in a direction which is, I would say, progressive. It's pro-technology. It's comfortable with progress. In fact, it's excited about solving problems and achieving a more prosperous future. So, like I say, it's a very different conceptual level. Just convincing some Greens to change their mind about nuclear wouldn't really do the job. It's actually a full-scale philosophical shift, I think, which needs to take place where we have a different kind of environmentalism, which actually holds some promise for the people of the world, rather than telling everyone they're bad and they should go back to doing things that they used to do 300 years ago. I mean, it seems to me that that is a lesson that is perhaps even more general than the environmentalist movement, which is that in order to win over hearts and minds and in order to be able both to build a better future and win political support for it, progressives in the broadest sense need to have an inspiring vision of what the future might look like. They need to say, hey, yes, our society has recently these problems, but here's the vision for a society in which those problems might be overcome. I think one of the really striking things at the moment, whether it's about the economy or about the discourse about race in the United States, is that visions of the future never seem to have that element. They never seem to have the promise that, hey, if we do these things, we're actually going to build a society that is worth having, that is worth fighting for. So how do you think people can draw on the Ecomodernist Manifesto or on other pieces of writing that you've done around the environment and climate to build that more forward-looking politics? Well, that's a really fascinating question. But why is it that all future fiction is dystopian? Why is it that whatever the vision of the future, it's always a society which is basically collapsing for one reason or another? So it's very unusual and it's quite difficult to have a positive, optimistic view of the future. And the same goes for our attitudes to technology. So the conventional viewpoint is that, well, we might solve this problem, but we'll end up creating a worse problem. And then we'll try and solve that problem and then it'll be an even worse problem. And so basically things always go from bad to worse to even worse still. And I don't think that has to be the case. And in fact, the history of modern civilization shows that that's not the case. If you look at medicine or any of the other things which have enabled us to become so well-fed and to live such long and prosperous lives for at least the global north, the evidence is quite clear that <laughs> that's not happened. In, in fact, where problems have come up, they have been addressed by technology or by politics, of course, as well. So I think a kind of can-do pragmatic attitude is something which has very deep roots and challenges a lot of very widespread thinking. And this goes much broader than just the environmental movement. I think it's something which is common to a lot of modern political thinking across the board. Yeah. So I think building this can-do attitude is incredibly important. It strikes me that when people on the left who are pessimistic go up for election against people on the right who are pessimistic, they always lose. Because no matter how much you can get people worried about abstract concepts like climate change or like the big corporations, fear works much better when you can put it in concrete terms, when you can say, Here's the enemy, the person who doesn't look like you, the person who doesn't have your values, this other politician who should scare you. And so if it's a competition of fear, I think the worst kinds of people on the right will always win. When it's a competition of hope and optimism, of a vision for a future, I think the left often has good cards. Yeah, and I think we're probably on the wrong side of the 
populism moment as eco-modernist because it's anti-populist. It's about an evidence-based perspective and it's about solving problems, whereas populism, to my mind, is about cheap solutions where you're just basically blaming other people. So I, I see a lot of commonality between the anti-vaccine movements, the anti-GMO movements, the anti-nuclear movements, all these movements which say don't trust science. They're all very anti-elitist. I mean, it's kind of Trumpian. It's actually quite authoritarian when it comes down to it because it's trying to stop scientists from innovating and it's trying to stop us from being able to solve problems. And, you know, it ends up just defending the status quo. And by the way, this is a phenomenon which really afflicts Europe as much as anywhere. You've got countries that consider themselves highly progressive like Germany in reaction to events thousands of kilometers away, shutting down their nuclear power stations, keeping coal on the grid for decades to come, and yet still have this idea of themselves as green pioneers. And I think it's just we have to really challenge these existing paradigms, and we don't have much time left to do that. So I think it's really important that anyone listening to this just feel able to get out there and to open up these debates a lot more than has been the case in the past. Um, Well, I mean, I think another example of this is vaccine hesitancy in some of the countries that generally most claim to believe in science. France has some of the highest levels of vaccine hesitancy anywhere in the world, higher than in the United States. On a slightly sillier note, I remember working as a graduate student in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and they didn't have any Wi-Fi. And when I inquired why they didn't have any Wi-Fi, this was perhaps about 10 years ago now, uh, they told me that the librarians had complained that the Wi-Fi was giving them headaches and perhaps would give them cancer. And so they disabled the Wi-Fi out of this very irrational fear about this new technology. I want to conclude this conversation, push you on a slightly different topic. So your mantra is to believe the scientists and to trust the scientists, and that is my instinct too. And I think of all of the many failures in the pandemic over the past year, science clearly has come out incredibly well. I mean, it is astonishing that we have not just developed and invented, but tested and rolled out at immense scale a vaccine against this terrible and novel disease. You know, the speed with which we have done that is unprecedented in human history, and it is a true lifesaver if we are able to go back out and Uh, start enjoying our lives in the next months. It is thanks to the achievements of these scientists. At the same time, I have to say that I have become much more skeptical of experts in a certain kind of way. I've been struck by the slowness with which public health authorities at the beginning called for offices to be shut down, for mass events to be shut down. I was struck by the extent to which The guidance for a long time was that masks didn't work. You can debate as to why that guidance was given. I think part of it was epistemological conservatism. There wasn't proof that they worked, which is, I think, the wrong way to think about it. But that's part of what happened. Part of it, I think, was also the sense that, well, we don't want people to go out buying masks because we need them for our doctors and nurses. So perhaps let's not be completely upfront about this. There's many other things, public letters by public health experts that made claims about the safety of auto protests, which I think were at least dubious, the failure on prioritizing vaccines in a sensible way. I mean, sort of again and again, there was points at which a skeptical reader of a lot of information on Twitter was months ahead of what the official guidance by public health experts and politicians were. So where does the line lie between trusting the science and trusting the experts or, you know, believing in the great liberatory prospect of science as I do, 
but maintaining a healthy skepticism about the ability of authorities, including public health authorities, to actually give us reliable, sensible information in a timely manner. Yeah, that's a really tricky one. And I think you put your finger on it that believing in science doesn't mean trusting authority blindly. And institutional science is different, I think, from what's out there in the scientific literature. I think there was a lot of evidence in the epidemiological literature that lockdown should have been adopted much, much earlier. And on the mask wearing thing, I actually think that the Western authorities were very reluctant to learn from Asia. Asian people have been wearing masks for a long time. What they'd successfully done with the SARS epidemic a decade earlier was obvious in terms of lessons learned. So I think there was a kind of I wouldn't want to say it's racism, but there was definitely a sense of superiority that us in the West are more scientifically advanced. We have nothing to learn from the likes of China, Taiwan or Singapore. And I think they've come to rue that day. But yeah, so overall, it's been an enormous victory for science and technology that we have vaccines produced on an incredibly rapid scale. And thanks goes to the Trump administration, I guess, for this one thing, Operation Warp Speed, you know, not just using traditional vaccine platforms. The mRNA platform's never been used before. I mean, it was being developed for cancers and other stuff. And even the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, by the way, genetically modified virus, which we're all having injected into our arms. All these things are very new technologies. And so in, in the same way that war gives a big boost to industry and technologies in some ways, The pandemic, I suppose, the one good thing is it's going to give a huge boost to medical technology in ways which will play out in beneficial ways that we still can scarcely imagine. So the world can be better after this pandemic. I think we haven't dropped climate change. Yes, there's some issues with vaccine nationalism and we need to get the poorer countries vaccinated as rapidly as possible. But I still think that we can emerge from this pandemic better than we went into it. And it's a terrible tragedy for the people who've died and for the families who've lost a loved one. But we can learn from this and we can enjoy a better century because of the lessons that we'll have learned from COVID-19. That's the hope that I have for the pandemic as well. I think it is imaginable that the pandemic will, in the end, save lives, as strange as that sounds, both because we have learned how to rapidly deploy mRNA vaccines. And in principle, we should be able to do that across a range of different viruses. And potentially, we might be able to do that against even more deadly respiratory viruses that we may face in the coming years and decades. And also because it may help us solve long-established diseases. The biggest way in which climate change kills people, according to many of the projections, is actually an expansion of the geographic zones in which people might suffer from malaria. And it looks as though there are now some very promising trials underway with mRNA vaccines, which may help protect people against malaria. It would be a very strange and ironic way in which this pandemic would help to save a lot of lives. But if we end up getting a malaria vaccine out of it, that would be a true improvement for humanity. Mark Linus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Yasha. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner 
for their song, Chess Pieces. 